Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have a very excellent very cool guest, Mr. Jerome Myers. Jerome is the preeminent authority of dream realization, a believer that dreams can and should be real. Jerome left corporate America when he realized that his role offered financial gain, but little significance. He is the founder and head coach of Myers Methods and has been featured in Black Enterprise, Business Insider, and numerous podcasts. After building a highly profitable division of a Fortune 500 company, Jerome decided to leave the rat race to get away from what seemed to be the endless slew of layoffs. He has developed a system for exiting corporate America and creating a life of impact. Today, he and his company help other apex performers find their calling and live every day on purpose by harnessing the power of his model for a centered life, what he calls the red pill. Jerome and his firms can guide any individual from a monotonous, uninspiring existence to a life full of fulfillment and impact. So let's give Jerome a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. So, Jerome, welcome to the show, buddy. How's it going today? Amazing. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. The pleasure's all mine, my friend. So, yeah, man, I've been waiting a while to get you on the show and talk about you and um, talk to you about what you're doing. So, um, briefly, can you um, talk to the listeners about um, about what you do and what you're involved in? Oh, man. <laughs> I develop people in places, right? So we buy and build multifamily properties and we do a very, very small group of one-on-one coaching clients to help them make their dreams a reality. Uh, That's really my passion, but the real estate is what gives me the freedom to work on that. So, you know, it's kind of a one hand washes the other scenario. All right, very cool. How long long have you been uh operating in the multifamily um, sector? Uh, we closed on our first deal in 2017. Took us about 11 months to get that first deal done. Oh, wow. So I left corporate America with no backup plan other than I was going to go buy an apartment building. And a uh, little less than a year after I left, uh, we had done that first deal. Awesome. So... Can you talk a little bit about um, how you overcame the barriers of getting into multifamily? <laughs> Not well, right? So <laughs> I was the guy who went and knocked on the door of 10 different banks. They all told me no. Uh, said I didn't have the requisite experience. And I was like, what do you mean? I got an MBA and an engineering license. And I built a $20 million division for a Fortune 550. What do you mean? He said, well, have you bought a property of similar size? and executed a business plan similar to one you're talking about right now. I said, no. They said, well, you don't have experience. You need to go find a partner. And so I had a problem, man. 
I didn't know anybody. And my life was very similar from that standpoint to when I was a sophomore in college. You know, I first got interested in multifamily investing when me and my buddy Duran were sitting on the stoop doing a little bit of math. I was paying three ninety five. He was doing the same thing. And we both had two roommates. And so we were like, this guy is making $700,000 a year, but we've never seen him or talked to him. Like, whoa, what if we just had 70000 a year? Like, that would be transformational for us. And we both thought it would buy our freedom, but we didn't know anybody that owned it. And so fast forward, I did nothing over the course of a couple of decades to build my network and actually get to a place in a space where I had people who were living out the things that I said I was interested in doing. And so with all that rejection, I had to go in and start fixing and flipping because that's what everybody else does, right? If you're a real estate investor, you're a fix and flipper or a wholesaler. So I did that. And while I was sitting on the stoop of my biggest rehab project, which was a $90,000 rehab on a 1920s build, a guy pulled up in his white Dodge Ram and he said, hey, I'm looking to do a property down the street. I'd like to check out your finishes. And at the end of him walking through my property, he stopped and said, do you know anything about that property behind the Chimbo Mart? And I was like, that 23-unit building? He said, yeah. He said, absolutely. I tried to buy it four or five months ago, but the bank said I didn't know. I didn't have experience. He said, I need to go find a partner, but I don't. I didn't know anybody. And... If you're interested in that, then maybe you have some experience in multifamily. He's like, we got a few buildings. I said, well, uh, I want to be your partner. And he looked at me and said, what are you going to bring to the table? And I said, I don't know. We'll figure that out. But I want to be your partner. And he asked again, what are you going to bring to the table? Third time, I said, look, man, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. Just don't leave me out of the deal. He got frustrated and shook his head a little bit and he walked out. And I just knew that he was going to call me. He did. And so a week went past and we get to the Tuesday of the following week. And I'm like, this guy doesn't even have my phone number. How are you going to call me? Uh, But I mean, I I messed up there, right? I couldn't articulate my value. I couldn't articulate what I could bring to a partnership. I didn't even say, hey, I got some money I can bring. So uh, he reached out to a buddy of mine and asked him to be a general contractor on the project. And he reached back, that general contractor reached me and said, hey, I told them I only felt comfortable doing this deal if you were a part of it because you brought it to me first. And so it was the three of us. And then we added in the broker who was selling the deal and the property manager. So it was five of us taking down this 23-unit deal that we bought for a little under $1.3 million. So... That was my way in, man. I had to find a partner and the partner opened up doors. And once we closed, my name was in the paper. And so all of the commercial bankers were scouring the business journal and they saw my name and they wanted me to have lunch with them and talk about portfolios. And I didn't even know what a portfolio was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, refis. And I was like, man, we just closed. Why are we talking about refis already? But that allowed me to cultivate some relationships and get in a place where I could go do my own deal. And so then I wrote my own contract. And that's how we we got in the game. And I think every investor is trying to overcome four things. Knowledge, deal, flow, experience, and capital. And I think you got to solve for those in that order. So 
the knowledge. I, I thought I saw for it by, you know, doing podcasts and YouTube. I don't recommend anybody do that because I was listening to 40 hours of content a week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I finally got into a deal, I found out that that puzzle that I actually got out of my box wasn't the same puzzle that everybody else was working on. So, you know, it was a rude awakening for all of that time investment I made. It was pretty inefficient and ineffective. The deal flow, you know, that was there. I actually had found a deal. We had to negotiate a little bit to make it make sense. But so we found the deal and then the experience was the big gap. And I think that's the differentiator. So what I'll say for anybody out there who's trying to figure it out is what makes you valuable is having the deal, right? You only know if you have a deal, if you've got the knowledge. And then you take that deal and you go partner with somebody who has experience because most experienced people don't want to spend their time trying to find deals. Mm. And so if you can find deals, then it's highly likely that you'll be over be able to overcome those barriers to getting into the game. I say it's like a fraternity or sorority, man. Somebody's got to bring you in. Or, you know, you, you get your own ticket in by bringing a deal to somebody who says, yeah, I like that deal. Let's do it. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny how you went from not knowing anything. It's funny how the universe puts the right right people and the right things in your path at the right time, even though it's not at the timeline that you want to operate in, right? Oh, man, I did not think it was the right time. I remember being upset with myself because I was working harder flipping houses than I did when I had a job. Like, what am I doing? And all the money was going the wrong way because I wasn't to the exits, right? When you're fixing flipping. You buy the deal, then you put all your money in your rehab and you hope that you sell it and make a profit. So it was like all this money was going the wrong way. And, you know, I I was hoping that on the back end I was going to cash in. But, you know, none of those things are guaranteed. Sure. And Jerome, why, why do you prefer joint ventures over syndication? Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I I want to own more of my deal. Right. I mean, there are some syndicators who can sell their investors on, hey, here's your return. It's better than what you'll get on Wall Street. But I think the vast majority of folks who are syndicators aren't able to do that. And so, you know, for us, we want to help other people get in the space. And the way that you get in the space is by signing a commercial loan. Right. That is the experience that the bank speaks of. Have you signed the loan? And you're not going to do that if you're a limited partner on the deal. Uh, I also don't really like the concept of people making money without having any operational responsibility. I think you become pretty tainted and jaded when you think about the world that way. Uh, My investments are to make an impact as well as to make income. And so, you know, when I think and maybe it's not fair to do it, but when I think about syndications, it's all about maximizing value to shareholders, right? It feels like I'm back at a Fortune 500 company and I I left corporate America for a reason. And so if we decide, hey, we're not gonna evict that person because they were impacted by COVID, we can get away with that because our partners are involved in that conversation. Uh, If we decide that we're going to invest a little bit more into the property, then we absolutely have to, then that's okay because our partners had a conversation about it and we agreed on it. It's not, hey, just throw this money back off as much as you can, as quickly as you can, um, 
been, you know, you're not potentially not improving the community or some of the other things that we like to do with our investments. So, you know, the autonomy, increasing our percentage of ownership and the ability to really, really make an impact without having to ask other people if it's okay are a few of the reasons why. Okay, cool stuff. And I, you mentioned earlier you had an um, engineering degree. So um, what are some of the reasons you think um, engineers make great multifamily investors? Analytics, man. I think, you know, if, if you're going to do this business, you better understand the numbers. And some people say, well, that's more of a business degree than anything else. And I guess in some ways you're right, but I, don't, I know a lot of people with business degrees who can't do a financial model. Whereas a lot of engineers are required to do some form of modeling at some point on their journey. And so if you can learn how to model, I, I used to do transmission structures for power lines when I was in corporate. If I can learn how to do that, then being able to take a PL, put it into my financial model, and then make some assumptions on where I think I could take the property to, uh, I think it's it was kind of a no brainer for me. You know, some folks just rely on what the property manager says. And, and I think that's a great mistake when you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on the line. I think you've got to be able to dig into the details and understand what frame your, your assumptions are correct on. Because, you know, as engineers have learned, you know, if you make a poor assumption, then what you think is going to come out on the back end is going to be inaccurate. And that ambiguity is something that allows engineers to be comfortable with what we do in multifamily investing. You know, if there has to be an exact right answer, uh, you're not going to find that in multifamily. The only thing that you know when you do your pro forma is, is that it's wrong. I don't know a single investor who's hit their pro forma to the number. I, I don't know a single one. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. you know, that's where I go with that. All right. Very cool. Yeah. You're definitely right about um, those assumptions in the pro forma, no matter how, how accurate you think your, your, um, your assumptions are, there's always something that goes sideways and puts those numbers off. So you better have some knowledge of what you're doing when you're putting those together for sure. All right, Jerome. So, I mean, you've done quite a few deals now. You got a lot of deals under your under your belt. So, what do you think? What are the steps to a successful multifamily deal if you're approaching one from from the start? Yeah, I think there's four steps. You find, fund, fix, and flip them. And so, finding a deal is just what it sounds like. Some people want to buy from a broker. I don't think you're going to find a deal. I think you may find a lead that way, but I don't think you want to find any deals. I think we're in a seller's market right now and people are pushing valuations. And depending on what you buy, where you buy it, you may buy too high. Your cost, and you can't fix a cost basis that's too high. So finding it is really the application of the knowledge that you can you know, get into a deal when you get the deal under contract, right? And then when you get under contract, you move into the funded phase. 
And the funded phase is one, getting your partners together or your investors together, as well as the standpoint. And this is important step from my perspective because you know all the decisions that you make here are going to be drive everything on the back end and so the the funded phase ends when you close and once you close you move into the fix it phase so now you're executing the business plan that you created during the funded phase with the partners that you decided were going to be there to help you and then the final step is flipping it and so what we like to do is take our deals and refinance so we get all of our money out of them. And then we can allow our cash flow or our returns to go to infinity. Or if the market is favorable, you can sell that deal and then harvest your equity and then go buy a bigger asset, which will throw more capital to you. You know, if you're a first generation wealth creator like I am, then I think you are going to have to do a few flips in order to get a place where you're generating cash flow that is meaningful. You know, it's always fun to pick with people who say, I got a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to put in a deal. I'm like, yeah, but it's going to get you $10,000 a year in cash flow If you're lucky, I don't think that's going to move the needle for you. Hmm. And so it's really interesting when I hear people talk about, Oh, well, I own $8,000 and so on and so forth. And when you look at how much, you know, equity they have in the deals or how much cash they put in the deals. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not certain that they're throwing off all that much cash flow. And so, you know, I, I think you got to optimize for the right strategy for you. And I don't think many people are having those conversations in, a, in an authentic way. I think people are just doing uh, quoting for a marketing standpoint and I think it's a little misleading for a lot of people who are just getting into the space. All right, very good stuff. And Jerome, what do you what do you think are some of the cha- challenges every investor needs to overcome? Yeah, man, we talked about that already, right? It's the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital. You know, I, I only talked about knowledge and deal flow because I think that is the thing that creates value. But if we dig into the experience and the capital, here's the thing. I think smart money follows experienced operators who have a great deal. And so what most people do is they say, well, I don't have the money to do this, so I shouldn't get started. And I I think that's the farthest thing from the truth. I think you make your investment in some education so that you can identify what a deal looks like. And then if you've been building your network of partners who have experience, well, one, they're going to have some cash and two, they're going to have some folks in their network who have some cash and that will help you close the gap on your deal. Now, if you don't have experience or capital, your ability to keep a lot of ownership is probably going to be diminished. But if you think about it, if you're able to sign that first deal, then now you're the experienced partner. Right. And so that gives you the flexibility to go uh, do your own deal. Right. Once you're in the fraternity or the sorority, you know, you got some sway and some say. But up until that point, you know, you're kind of at the mercy of other people who may or may not value your contribution to the project. And, you know, that's that's all relative. And I, I think, you know, depending on how well you negotiate, you may be able to get something out of it. But 
you know, I, I wouldn't be so focused on how big of a piece you get the first go around as much as making sure that you sign the loan and get it introduced to some other people who are doing deals. Okay. I mean, you've done quite a few deals and um, most of them or all of them are joint ventures or partnerships. That's correct. So um, I'm sure in your time, you've made some mistakes in joint ventures or maybe partnering with people that with hindsight, you probably wouldn't do it again. What do you think are some of the mistakes to avoid when, when getting into a joint venture with someone? Yeah, I think the biggest one is not knowing who you're partnering with. You know, it's easy to meet somebody at a conference and say, hey, we're going to take over the world and we're going to buy this and we're going to buy that. But, you know, if you haven't seen somebody in stress and you're building a business partnership with them where you've got an operating business that is going to have issues and you don't know what your partner does when they're stressed, it's safe to say that you're going to get a surprise and it's going to be one that you don't enjoy. And so what I tell people to do is really make sure you understand who you're partnering with. You know, it's really, really difficult to find great partners. And most people who I know won't do partnerships because they've had so many poor ones. And so the game is getting to know people when they're under stress and seeing how they respond. And a great example is if they're never the reason why something didn't work, they're not going to be the reason why something doesn't work in your deal. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So segueing off that, I think that that pours into a big topic, which is a, which is a favorite one of mine. So how, how does the power of having a positive mindset affect your deals when you're running into stressful situations? Yeah. I mean, PMA is the end all be all if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think every entrepreneur gets punched in the face every now and again. And if you can't smile about it and move on, then, you know, it's likely that you're going to crumble under the pressure. And so looking for the upside, because, you know, if you think about a cracker or a slice of bread, they don't have one side. Right. And so every situation is just like a cracker or a slice of bread. There's a positive side and the not so positive side. But if you can find the positivity in each one of those scenarios, if you can enjoy your cracker, then you just take the good with the bad and know that it's just part of it. That polarity is part of it, a necessary requirement in order for us to really enjoy the space that we're in. And we can just take things to the next level there because now there isn't any confusion about what's going to happen or how it happened or why it happened. Uh, it's just the natural order of things. All right. Very good. All right, Jerome. Very good. So now I want to jump into lightning round with you and get your, um, get your take on a few subjects. I'd like to ask all of my guests. Let's do it. All right. So what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Yeah, Robin Dreeks, Sizing People Up, changed my life in 2020. You know, I I struggled with being able to discern who I should trust and who I couldn't. And 
what I learned, what I realized, what I understood was that I thought that like and trust were synonymous. So, you know, Don, if I, if I liked you, then I trusted you implicitly. And that's just the silliest thing you can do. Trust comes from predictability. And so figuring out if you can predict what a person is going to do is what is laid out in that book by Robin Drake. And I think anybody who's building network fast is a must read. It's Robin. How do you spell that last name? D-R-E-K-E? D-R-E-E-K-E. Okay, Robin Drake. All right, cool. I'll, I'll check that out. All right, and next one. How has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Oh, man. Which one? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just at the highest level for me, I think a lot of people would consider being left out of that first deal initially as a failure. Um, just because yeah, I didn't show up the way I needed to. And so because I was left out, it made me really reevaluate the way that I thought about myself. And it made me have to spend the time understanding what value I actually bring to the table. You know, it's truly a disservice to yourself when you don't know what, why you're valuable, why you're somebody, somebody should partner with, you know? And so doing that reflection, I realized, man, like, you're okay. Like you've done some pretty cool things and you need to be able to package that up so that if somebody asks you, like, what are you bringing to the table? You can turn that conversation around and they're explaining to you why you should be willing to partner with them. And so for me, it was just a, a foundational shift in the way that I thought about myself and what I could bring to the table in business. You know, it, it hurt my ego quite a bit when all the banks told me I wasn't capable or qualified. And mm. that's part of the reason why I didn't have anything to say when my partner asked, hey, what do you bring to the table? But, you know, now that we got it figured out and I was in a paper and I saw how the tables turned, uh, you know, it made a difference for me, a real difference. All right, very cool stuff. All right, so Jerome, if you can have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Your dreams should be real. Very cool. Your dreams should be real. All right. Yeah, I know you deal with the dream catchers. I'm going to get you to articulate that on a bit, a bit before we before I let you off. But I'm going to jump to the next question. Um, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? I remember I was going to a space of trying to be a minimalist. And I, I don't know that you could be a minimalist and believe in abundance. Uh, and so I'm all about abundance, man. I think people should have all the things that they desire to have. I think they should enjoy them and use them to serve other folks. And you know, I, I'm not excited about trying to contract my life just so that I can say that I'm financially free or, you know, whatever other thing that 
we have tried to replace possessions with. I think possessions are there to serve us. I think possessions are there to allow us to serve other people. And serving can be a lot of different things. Inspiration, it can be uh, experiences, whatever the case may be. And so if everybody's trying to figure out how not to have anything or not be responsible for anything, I think we're doing the world a disservice. I really do. I, I think you should have that thing that you dreamed of as a kid. Um, but somewhere along the way, we've introduced this concept that, hey, you, you don't need, if you had a car on your wall, you don't actually, you don't need that car. Or maybe you shouldn't even have it. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe there's something wrong with you for wanting that. I think that's wrong. Mm. That's a very interesting concept. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you believe in abundance, you can't be a minimalist. I think you can do a whole podcast just off of that concept right there. I'm going to have to have yeah. you back. Let's do it, man. I, I'd love to explore it. Nobody's nobody's wanted to ideate on it, right? Because they're, they're diametrically opposed, right? Yeah. The fire movement is don't have anything, don't be responsible for anything. And then there's the people who are like me and, you know, indulging and enjoying life. You know, I'm, after we finish, I'm going to go to a wake for a young lady who died when she was 35 or 36 years old. And so for the folks who are, you know, trying to get free and like, what if, what if your life is extinguished tomorrow or a year from now? Would it? Would you be able to say you enjoyed it because you were fire? I, I just don't know if that's the real reason why we're here. For sure, for sure. Okay, and Jerome, what advice would you give a smart, driven investor about to invest with someone raising capital for a multi-real estate venture, multi-family real estate venture? If you can't model a deal, you shouldn't place your money in it. That's simple, huh? It's, but nobody's going to actually take me up on it, right? So here's the thing. The private placement investments require that you actually understand the investment that you're making. Hmm. And so there's a lot of people in the space who are treating it like it's financially regulated, like the stock market. It's not. There's no accounting principles. There's, there's nothing that standardizes the approach. And so, you know, there are folks who raise extra money just so they can pay people their pref. And they think that the deal is making money, but it's not. To me, I struggle with that, right? And so, you know, we're getting access to these private placements, don't really understand how they operate, can't actually model them to say that we've assessed the risk and we agree with the assumptions and we're making investment decisions based on IRR or whatever the pref is. I just think that is not financially prudent. Mm, okay. All right. And the next one, Jerome, what have you become better at saying no to? Uh, people who are not willing to compensate me for the counsel that I'm able to give them. So, you know, when I was, this goes back to, you know, being a minimalist and feeling like you shouldn't have things and so on and so forth. 
when you provide real value for people, whether it's, you know, allowing them, helping them make more money, you know, helping them enjoy their life more, keeping them from making poor decisions, whatever the thing is, when you're creating real value for people, they should be ecstatic to compensate you for that. But what we've kind of grown into as a, from a cultural standpoint is, oh, well, I don't want to pay anybody for anything. And if you want to charge me, then I'll say, hey, it's free. And now I'll go spend 10 hours trying to figure out the thing you could have taught me in 10 minutes. And so there is a shift where you start believing that your time is more valuable than money. And when you make that shift, I think you begin to see the value in going to people who can actually give you counsel, not opinions, not advice, but somebody who can give you counsel to help you get to that next place quicker. And so for the folks who don't see counsel, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, support to lend to them because I, I'm not interested in talking for talking's sake, right? I, if somebody comes to me, I want to give them an actionable game plan so that they can go out and execute the thing that they're interested in doing. If they are interested in doing that, then I'm wasting my time and theirs by engaging in that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's crucial. And I think that, that plays to your point that you spoke on earlier of um, investing in yourself. I mean, like, I don't mind paying $35,000, $40,000 to someone who can help me move my knowledge forward in the area that I want to improve in. So yeah, I think that's very important. If, yeah, if they're not willing to pay you for the time and the value you bring, yeah, let's move on. No, thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I think you go at it at a high level. I don't, I'm not encouraging anybody to go spend 35 or 40, especially not when they're just getting started, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think there, there's some testing. There's some questions about, you know, whether or not this is actually what they want to do or if this is how they want to do it. And so pushing that many chips in on the table, I think, is a mistake for folks who um, aren't sure. For the person who's certain, and I think you're one of those folks who was certain, then, yeah, I think it's the right move because it's going to get you from A to B faster than anything else. But I, I think there are some other alternatives for people who are curious and they can explore that curiosity to see if it's the right thing for them. Because I think both things are a success. You get in and you find out that this thing is for you. And so you go through and you do the deal. I think that's success. Or you get in at a much lower ticket. And you figure out that, hey, I don't really want to do this, mm. especially for those folks who want to be operators, right? They think they want to be operators, and then they figure out what being an operator really means. And so they find their way out. Both of those things are success. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, because I think a lot of times you get in and you find out how much goes into being an operator. You may, well, maybe I just want to be passive, or maybe I want to be sure. That's definitely true. All right. So just a couple of more for you, Jerome. Um, when you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? Meditate. Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the best thing that's happened. I just started like a year ago, but yeah, that's the best thing that's come into my life in a long time, for sure. All right. And the last one, this is a, kind of a deep one. You might have to think on this one, but you might not. But what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Mm. I was going to use my go-to, but I'm going to give you something that's a little more introspective. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm going to go there. So I think if you are looking for a multifamily educator who doesn't put somebody who looks like you on stage at their conference or have a significant representation on their podcast, they're not going to do a deal with you. Mm-hmm. And have you been to many conferences where you've seen that? <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> All right, very good, very good. All right, Jerome, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, so if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, um, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, man, we've got a free four-step guide for getting into multifamily investing on my website. Uh, JeromeMyers.co, and you know there's plenty of other stuff on there if you want to pick your own journey but definitely grab that thing because i think it can cut the learning curve or yeah i mean i think it absolutely cuts the learning curve for anybody who's interested in the space all right and i don't know if you can do this quickly but can you can you talk a little bit before you go off about just the um the red pill and the green pill and how that plays into um some of the things you're doing yeah, so I took the red pill as a homage to the movie The Matrix. I think it was a documentary. Some folks think it was a sci-fi flick, but I think it was a documentary for the way that most of us are living our lives. And so when you make the declaration that you took the red pill, you are saying that I'm going to live my truth and that the world will accept me for who I am. And I'm going to go out here and make the world a better place. We you know, created a podcast called Dreamcatchers around it, where we tell the stories of people who have exited the matrix, the matrix being corporate America. And it gives you the tools, tips, and techniques that they use to find their freedom. And I don't think everybody should be a corporate America dropout like me, but I think there is, you know, a small percentage of us who are seeking others who have done it successfully and are looking to, you know, get that inspiration and maybe find some things that allow us to cut the learning curve down so that we can get there quicker. You know, I would tell nobody to leave corporate America the way I did. I had nothing planned. Uh, I thought I was going to buy an apartment building, but I didn't really have a plan to do that. So, you know, if you can get a soft landing, if you're going to leave, I think it's an absolutely amazing opportunity for you. All right, excellent. And that podcast, again, is called Dreamcatchers. Yes, sir. Okay, and they can find that on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, all of those? It's everywhere. And then if you are if you really want to understand the war stories that the operators go through, check out Multifamily Missteps. It's a fairly popular podcast. And we bring people in and we have them tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly to make sure that you understand what you're getting into because there's a lot of folks out here who will romanticize this thing and make it seem like it's perfect all the time. And I don't know an operator who doesn't have a headache on a weekly basis. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, excellent, Jerome. So again, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And um, I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you for the opportunity. Likewise, Jerome, have a good evening. You too. All right, bye. There you have it, guys another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. 
If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.